Well, good morning. My name's Lucas, and I am a pastoral resident here at Castleton. And if I hadn't had the chance to meet you yet, I would welcome that opportunity after service. If you haven't opened your Bibles yet, go ahead and do that. We're going to be in Luke 6 this morning, starting with verse 22. And we're going to continue in our summer sermon series, Sermon on the Plain, walking through Jesus' teaching on what it truly looks like to be kingdom people, how Jesus flips the cultural expectations on their heads and instead gives an eternity-focused perspective on life on this earth. Just before our passage, we've spent the last few weeks looking at one section of Jesus' sermon, the blessing and the woes, and we'll finish that section with the final set this morning. Luke chapter 6, 22 through 23, and verse 26. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Verse 26, woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray this morning. Father, it's such a joy to gather together each week as a church family, worship together, and longing for Jesus' return. May you remind us that we have a heavenly home waiting for us, and so help us to be faithful pilgrims today. We thank you for your word, and we pray that your spirit would be with us this morning to encourage us, convict us, to point us to Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. I want us to pause for a moment before we begin and just consider what it means to be a Christian in America in 2022. Consider for a moment the present state of our culture and our country, specifically in its relation to Christianity. I doubt we would need much time at all to come to this most basic conclusion that America was not like this even 15 years ago. The cultural moment that we are in today is much different than it was in our not-too-distant past. Just two weeks ago, Gallup released its most recent poll, which asks Christians, or Americans, excuse me, Americans, one question. Do you believe in God? And I don't think that it was all that surprising that the poll hit a new record low at 81%. And it wasn't all that long ago that to be found missing from church on Sunday morning induced some kind of cultural shame, or at the very least for the younger generation, a good old whooping from dad. But I think gone are the days that an association with God or the church brings with it some kind of cultural positive for your life. In fact, I think the opposite is becoming true. 
businesses and institutions are increasingly disassociating themselves from Christianity or Christian morals for fear of being labeled a certain way. Employers are pushing the moral boundaries of their employees, calling them to get on board with the new moral code or to leave. And as culture lobs its missiles at the church and at who and what it stands for, we really shouldn't be all that surprised that some of those missiles begin to land upon us and our families. When our cubicle mate or that longtime next door neighbor or that college buddy from back in the day or even a close family relative, when they begin to turn away from us because the truths of God's word are now offensive and we're labeled as uncaring. And I bring all this in front of us this morning to say that the words of Jesus in our passage this morning bring an encouragement and even a warning that probably weighs upon us a little bit differently today than it might have even just a few years ago. And as this form of mistreatment or persecution increases, there is a greater need for hope and for an eternal perspective. But there is also a great temptation, a great temptation that arises in our hearts to pull back from revealing our belief in the gospel, to curb the awkward by removing God from the conversation, to keep peace with those around us by keeping our religion to ourselves. And in doing so, we might reveal a deep desire for the approval of man above the approval of God. But Jesus in our text gives us an encouraging and hopeful word today. And it is in and through him that we have earthly endurance because of a heavenly reward. We'll see Jesus' teaching this morning in two main sections. Number one, the prize of the persecuted in verses 22 through 23, which is Jesus' blessing. And we'll spend most of our time this morning there. And number two, the peril of the people pleasers, verse 26, which is Jesus' woe. The prize of the persecuted and the peril of the people pleasers. As I mentioned, we're finishing this final set of blessing and woes this morning. Jesus has been teaching his disciples and us that the Christian life is not always what it seems. From the outside, you may be poor, you may be hungry, you may be weeping. And the world looks at these conditions with aversion and with situations to be avoided at all costs. Therefore, they seek and they long for money and satisfaction in food, and they laugh the days away, pushing down deep into their conscience any pause or consideration of eternal matters or their eternal destiny. But life is not always as it seems for Christians. And today in our passage, just like in the others we've looked at, we'll see that those who are united to Jesus are truly blessed. And they can endure all manner of trials, knowing that where it really matters, they are rich, satisfied, joyful, and now rewarded. So number one, the prize of the persecuted. Verse two begins like this. Blessed are you when people hate you, 
and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. We're going to follow Jesus' teaching on this first point in four movements, and the first movement is the situation. Unlike these other three blessings that we've looked at, Uh, that have seemed to be kind of ongoing conditions, this one presents a specific situation. Blessed are you when. There's a specific time in view. Jesus foresees moments coming when the cultural or individuals turn against those who live out the Christian life like Jesus teaches. That a faithful life will attract a negative kind of attention and bring a type of of persecution. And this shouldn't really be all that surprising to us, I don't think. Jesus tells us this in John 15, if they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. All right, if we are to be imitators and followers of Jesus, we ought not to be surprised when we follow in his footsteps. So when this happens, it's not an if, but it's a when. And when what? Jesus gives us four angles of a relational kind of persecution. A relational kind of persecution. People hate you. They exclude you, or more literally, they separate themselves from you. They don't want to be associated with you. They revile you, or they insult you. And fourthly, they spurn your name as evil. They cast aside your reputation. They throw your name in the dirt. Each of these is a potential form of relational persecution. And I say potential because of the second movement, the qualifier. I know a loose friend here in Indy who was fired from his job recently. His name wiped from the company list. I heard another employee talk negatively about him, about his work about his work ethic, and there's clearly some kind of anger, frustration, reviling that he must have endured as he was forced out of the company. And you could say that in some ways, he kind of fit into Jesus' categories here, his hated, name spurned, some kind of reviling. But you see, there's a catch, the reason for his firing He was caught stealing tens of thousands of dollars from the company over four to five years. That changes things, doesn't it? It's it's pretty big different. There can be a flood of reasons of why we might experience some kind of relational persecution. Maybe you're not very kind and compassionate. Maybe you cut corners and you cheat, you steal, you hurt people. Maybe you're overbearing to your spouse or your children, or you're dishonoring to your parents. Or in other situations, maybe you experience this uh, exclusion or reviling because of a social group group you're a part of, or of a uh, political solution that you align with, or for that matter, a sports team or a college that you like. You can experience all kinds of relational hardship for all kinds of different reasons. But Jesus doesn't call you blessed for enduring these reasons. There is only one reason given, the most important qualifier that grounds the blessing given to those who are persecuted and hated by the world. And that one reason is just one person, the Son of Man. If you are hated 
excluded, reviled, or spurned against for the single reason that you are united to Jesus Christ, then and only then does Jesus promise blessing. And in this blessing, Jesus is calling us to count the cost of following him, specifically the relational cost. J.C. Ryle, in his book on holiness, says this about counting the cost in relation to the favor of the world. It's a little long. Stay with me. The Christian must be content to be thought ill of by man if he pleases God. He must count it no strange thing to be mocked, ridiculed, slandered, persecuted, or even hated. He must not be surprised to find his opinions and practices in religion despised and held up to scorn. He must submit to be thought by many a fool, an enthusiast, and a fanatic, to have his words perverted and his actions misrepresented. In fact, he must not marvel if some call him mad. There's a cost to following Jesus. Through the eyes of the world, the faithful Christian is not loved and not welcomed. He is torn down because Jesus and the message of the gospel are offensive. For they call men and women to confess their sins and to confess their helplessness and to submit to a king and to a Lord. But I want to consider for a moment this morning what this cost really means and maybe looks like in our lives. I'm going to assume, I guess maybe wrongly, that most of us aren't directly hated or insulted on a regular basis. I'm sure there are exceptions. But that might lead us to think that this kind of relational persecution is happening but it's happening somewhere out there. And I don't think that that's the case. I think that it's actually much closer than we realize. And I think Jesus has some encouragement and hope for us. I expect that most of us are in relationships and we've been held at arm's length because that person is uncomfortable with or put off by our union and relationship with Christ. There's that thick tension at family gatherings because you don't agree with the lifestyles of family members because they don't align with Jesus' words. And any loving or kind, compassionate attempts to present the true gospel are shot down because you're holier than thou. At work, you're called a sissy. You're said to be on your moral high horse because you didn't watch that graphic show last night that's the topic of current conversation. Or you're so stubborn, you always refuse to gauge in the office gossip about your boss or that difficult employee. You're not quite in at work because you stand with Jesus and you strive for kingdom living. Or you've gotten the cold shoulder from a usually friendly neighbor and you realize it was because you weren't flying the right colored flag last month. The list could go on. Children disowning their parents because of their godly household. Elderly parents who keep conversations surface level because they don't want to hear any more about Jesus. Christian friends that think you're just too serious about your faith. 
Our lives and relationships can be filled with ways in which our belief and grounding in the gospel and Jesus causes relational walls to be built in front of our faces. The cost of following Jesus is not somewhere out there. I think it's close by. I think it's real. I think it's hard. But Jesus is unsurprised by it. And he looks down upon you as his child and he says, blessed. Blessed is my son and my daughter who suffers on my account. The difficult part, of course, is that enduring relational persecution or any kind of persecution is hard. How can I stand by and watch as my name is dragged through the dirt or as my relationships crumble because of my faith or opportunities pass me by because I'm unwilling to compromise Jesus' word? Well, Jesus doesn't promise that it would be easy, but he does give us a promise and some instruction for our response, which is our third movement this morning, our response. Jesus says, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. As is almost always the case, Jesus turns our eyes to eternity. Like with the other blessings, Jesus calls our attention not to the present, but to the future and to the spiritual. Those who endure for Jesus' sake are promised a great reward in heaven. There's an extra large dose of reward waiting for the faithful believer who perseveres through the outpour of hatred, insult, exclusion, and disdain and is faithful until the end. And Jesus says, the reason that you can endure today is because there is a heavenly reward waiting for you, one that is greater than any earthly reward, greater than having any earthly relationship. And knowing that this is waiting for you, promised to you, ought to give you hope and strength to endure today. But this begs a question, does it not? Because while we can hope because of a future reward, the pain of persecution is here and now. So what about right now? What am I to do now? Well, Jesus is glad you asked because he offers another world-twisting response. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. In the moment when the relational wall is most obvious and you feel the pain of counting the cost, Jesus calls you to rejoice, to leap for joy. It's painfully obvious in my life, at least, that this is not something that comes naturally or easily. How can I rejoice right now? But that future reward is the ground and the hope for my rejoicing. But my heart, at least, is very slow and I think really unable to rejoice in the midst of this. And I think that's because the truth is that this rejoicing is not a willed emotion on my part or on our part. 
but is in fact a gift from God. And Luke writes this into this passage by using in that word rejoice a passive voice. And one commentator said this about it. That implies that joy in the face of such adversities is given, not self-produced. You see, only the Lord can cause such a heavenly response to an earthly suffering of this kind. It is a joy, a leaping for joy that is given by God. Just like when John the Baptist leapt in the womb, it's the only other time Luke uses this word. We are to have a pure joy in God that is supplied only by God. Where John leaped because of who was greater in that present moment, we, with God's help, leap for joy because of the greatness of our future hope and prize. A joy in the face of persecution. And the book of Acts and the epistles are really filled with hopeful reminders that there is blessing for suffering for Christ's sake. 1 Peter 4, 13-14 and 16 says this, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Praise God that we are counted worthy to suffer, the apostles said in Acts 5. The world marks suffering as something to be avoided at all costs. But here Jesus says that suffering is a true marker of a true Christian. And we suffer just like the prophets suffered, which is the final movement of the blessing, the example. How do I really know that being persecuted for Jesus means I'm doing the right thing, that this is really the right way? Well, because Jesus says you're in good company. The true prophets were also hated and rejected, spurned, because they preached a true message of repentance, but nobody wanted to hear it. They spoke truth, but the people cast them aside, and they disbelieved the words of God. So Jesus says if the prophets were treated this way, and if Jesus himself was treated this way, then we as his disciples should expect to also be treated this way. So you might be in the thick of it, on the receiving end of hatred and reviling. And Jesus calls you to have a heavenly mindset and rejoice because your reward is great. Or you may be experiencing the, the subtle yet powerful cold shoulder experiencing the relational cost of following Jesus. And Jesus gives you hope today because the cost of following Jesus is worth it. Or you may be here and you're not really feeling like you experience this very much or at all. And maybe I'd suggest two reasons why that might be the case. Maybe it's because it's not now, but it's coming soon. Right When you are hated. And for you, Jesus calls you to prepare your heart 
and to prepare your soul now? Are you holding on more to Jesus or to the relationships that you have in this world? The other possible answer for not experiencing this kind of relational persecution today is because of the reason that Jesus specifically gives below. Maybe you need to hear his warning this morning. But before we turn to that woe, I want to give a very brief word of caution. You see, there may be a temptation to take Jesus' words here to mean one of two things. One, that intentionally seeking out more relational persecution might increase your heavenly reward. Or two, that rejoicing when persecuted means rejoicing in the face of those who revile or exclude you. Neither of which I think are true. Number one, there is a faithful living that neither seeks out suffering nor turns away from suffering. A faithful path down the middle. And number two, we should be reminded that on the other side of those hurtful words and that cold shoulder is a human soul. And that person needs to hear about the life-giving gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how harsh they may be. All this leads us to our second point, which, as I mentioned, will be shorter than the first, but no less important. Number two, the peril of the people pleasers. Verse 26, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Jesus makes a sharp contrast between those who hold to their faith in Jesus in the face of persecution and those who instead seek to be well spoken of. And the qualification here of all people points to a heart motivation of a person. To get all people to speak well of you means making it an aim or a goal of yours to be well liked and to be accepted by all people. This raises a question, how could you even do that? How could you possibly become liked by all people? I think Jesus helps us answer that by again referencing the prophets. But this time it's not the true prophets, but the false prophets. Let me give you just two examples from the Old Testament about the nature of the false prophets and their teaching. First one is in Isaiah 30. Isaiah is speaking about the Israelites and their unwillingness to hear God's word. It says this, For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. What kind of prophet do they want? One that speaks not hard things, but smooth things. How did these false prophets become preferred by the people? They gave them what the people wanted. They spoke untrue but welcomed easy words, keeping the peace, shielding the truth and God from the people. Second example is from Micah 2. It says, If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. 
Micah says, if you want to be a preacher for this people, preach to them the things that they already love. Being spoken well of comes to you when you avoid what the people or the culture labels as uncomfortable. And so you see, I think being being well-liked by everyone, or at least having status quo relationships all around you, it's not actually that hard. You say the right things, back off on, the right, on that topic, show support for this cause, cover up your Sunday morning habit. You can be friends with just about everybody. It's no barriers, no walls. However, if you are a follower of Christ, Jesus calls you to stop and consider what this would mean. One commentator said this, It is a danger when all men speak well of you, for this can scarcely happen apart for some sacrifice of principle. If if spoken well of is your highest priority, then something else will have to crumble beneath it. I like the picture R.C. Sproul gave of a Christian. He says, the only way to have a reputation where everybody speaks well of you is to wear two faces. And oh, how easy, church, I think it is to wear two faces. To have a Sunday morning face, a church friend's face, and to have a pleasing to all face. There's a real temptation to be welcomed and liked by all. It feels good to be on the inside, to be accepted, to be a part of the team. I know that we've all felt this. I've felt it in all kinds of situations. A soccer team I was on in high school, construction job I had in college, a job at an inclusive corporation. Maybe for you it's the workout buddies or the mom's group or the early morning coffee club or the summer family gathering. Any manner of situations where it's obvious that there's a relational wall and we have the choice to uphold that wall, blessing, or to knock it down. Just Jesus says, woe. We can fear the Lord and suffer on his account, or we can fear man and be people pleasers to remove God from relationships and to keep the Lord covered up. And Jesus says, woe is meant to cause us to stop and consider if we fall into this category. For if we continue down this path, there is peril waiting for us. If the love and the acceptance of this world and the relationships that we have within it rank above the Son of Man, Jesus says, woe to you, for it shows that we may belong to the kingdom of this world. For while this temptation may be great, and while we may have failed in the past, and may even fail in the future, the Lord, through his word, gives us hope-filled, and a reward-filled path forward. For as many times as you are rejected or hated or reviled, the Lord heaps upon heavenly blessing. You may be here this morning and wondering, why do Christians endure such hardship for their faith? Why do they care so much about what they do and what they say and what they watch? And the reason is that we care deeply about who we belong to. 
We believe that Jesus Christ entered into this world and endured all manner of sufferings, ultimately dying on the cross. And that death on the cross was not because of anything he had done or any wrong that he had committed, but was a death in the place of all of us who have turned our back on God, sinning against his holy name and glory. And Jesus is the one that paid the ultimate price on the cross and secured for us our salvation. And Jesus' endurance of ridicule and mocking on this earth was a picture and an example for us. Those who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus' salvation, they may have an earthly life of hardship, but we will also have an eternal life of joy and heavenly reward. And we get the distinct pleasure of welcoming in any who may hear this good news and put their trust solely in Jesus' salvation for their sins. If you've never done that this morning, I invite you today to trust in Jesus, trust in his good name, his good sacrifice, and the reward that he gives. And I, or a staff member, or even the person who brought you, would love to talk to you after the service. For those of us who are seeking to be kingdom people, having a heavenly-mindedness, Jesus reminded us today that no matter how unpopular or culturally unacceptable it is to be a Christ follower, he has promised us a heavenly reward and called us to rejoice. I was reminded of our Life After Death series where God's word redirected our eyes to him and to the future we have with him. Right? We are but pilgrims in this world and strangers who may get even stranger as time and culture marches on. But our eyes are fixed upon our greatest treasure, Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be a people marked by our bold faith and able to endure because of Jesus. The worship team is going to come up and we're going to sing one final song this morning. And part of the song says this. Mine are days here as a stranger, pilgrim on a narrow way. One with Christ I will encounter harm and hatred for his name. But mine is armor for this battle, strong enough to last the war. And he has said he will deliver safely to the golden shore. And mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the king I walk. For there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. Let's stand and sing that together. <clears throat>